Welcome to Mysteries Abound, a collection of stories about the unusual, the strange, the perplexing, and the downright odd. In our world today, Mysteries Abound. Welcome everyone to the Mysteries Abound podcast. This is your host Paul and this is episode 30. We've got some interesting stories this week. The first being a Russian camera can see the soul and this comes from the www.russiatoday.com website. A wonder device can see the soul of a dead man pass away. Or at least that's what the inventor claims. A publication of the popular Russian tabloid, Life.ru, gives a dramatic account of the experiments of an inventor from St. Petersburg who has created a device able to see human aura. Accompanied by pictures suspiciously reminiscent of a series of thermal images of a woman at different temperatures, the report claims that they are made with a special gas discharge camera built by Konstantin Korotkov, a professor at the Research Institute of Physical Culture and State University of Information Technologies, Mechanics and Optics. The paper goes on to say that the device can register the circumstances of death, differentiating between a victim of a violent crime and a person who died quietly in bed. It also registers the changes in aura presumably made by a strong psychic working on somebody. Disregarding the glib comparison of the religious term soul with the New Age aura, the claims prompted us to take a little investigation into the wonder device. The instrument, which was presented to us as something involved in the study of death, turned out to have been designed as a medical diagnosis tool. With about 15 years of development behind it, Its inventor claims that it's an affordable early diagnosis tool capable of identifying any disease from an ulcer to a brain tumour by scanning irregularities in an aura. Sort of a spiritual healer in metal and plastic, available to everyone for a small fee. No mystical stuff here. A patient can see his own aura on the computer screen, all thanks to the gas discharge visualisation or GDV. The spiffy name is actually a modern application of a well-known phenomenon called Curlian Effect, named after Semyon and Valentina Curlians, a Russian couple who greatly contributed to popularising it back in the 1960s. Curlian experimented with photographing objects with high voltage applied to them. The strong electric field causes faint corona discharges around the edges, which can even be seen with the naked eye. The visual appeal of the effect won the hearts of mystic-oriented people. Starting with Curlians themselves, 
Many people claimed that the electrical phenomena was actually a way to colorize otherwise invisible auras of objects. Korotkov is one of these claimants. According to him, corona discharges around fingertips, which his GDV cameras cause, have information about one's physical condition, and this information can be used for diagnosis. The claim was never confirmed by clinical tests, but it didn't prevent the device from becoming the cornerstone of a widespread business. With different models costing from four and a half to thirteen thousand dollars, and official dealers all across Russia and abroad, the invention seems to generate enough cash for Korotkov to travel the world and promote his product. Meanwhile, critics openly call the GDV quackery. Back in 2002, when the device drew the attention of the Russian media, RTR TV channel did an investigation of their own, producing a 20-minute long report. They reveal that in the testing of a GDV scanner done in the Military Medical Academy, one of the strong points trumpeted by the producer was actually its ability to kill bacteria on hands, which it successfully did. It was never used for diagnosis of any kind. Another selling point, the testing of the device on Russian sportsmen, showed that readings of the device may vary slightly with the state of mind of the subjects, as it does with variations in the environment, like a change of air temperature or humidity. In an interview given to a newspaper two years ago, Korotkov said his invention was like a knife. It could be used for good or bad purposes. Indeed, the beautiful Curlian effect can be used for dubious intentions, or for inspiring works of art, like those of photographer Robert Butelman. As far as public science goes, there is no other application for it. And if you go to the show notes at www.origins.info, and then the Mysteries Abound show notes, and then to episode 30, you'll find within this article a link to the photographer Robert Butelman and his beautiful photography. Coming up on the Mysteries Abound podcast, a few stories with the theme of reincarnation. The first is an article by Brian Horton from the www.mysteriouspeople.com website. Patience worth. Proof of reincarnation? Patience worth was the pen name used by St. Louis housewife Pearl Lenore Curran to author a perplexing variety of novels poems and prose during the early part of the 20th century. What is different about Patience Worth is that Mrs. Curran claimed that she was the spirit of a 17th century English girl who channeled her thoughts and ideas through her. If so, could Patience Worth be proof of reincarnation? Probably not, but it's an interesting story anyway. Mrs. Curran was born Pearl Lenore Pollard in Mound City, Illinois, on the 15th of February, 1883. The family later moved to Texas and then to St. Louis when Pearl was 14. Academically below average, 
The young girl did possess a talent for music, taking lessons and training in piano and voice as the family moved yet again, this time to Palmer, Missouri. From the age of 18 to 24, Pearl worked at various jobs in Chicago during the winter, returning home to Missouri during the summer months to teach music. When Pearl was 24, she married John Howard Curran, living a comfortable and uneventful middle-class existence in St. Louis. The Currans did not own books, were not well-travelled or particularly well-educated, and spent their time playing cards with friends, attending the theatre or going out to restaurants. In August 1912, one of Pearl's neighbours showed her a Ouija board and persuaded her to place her hands on it. Despite Pearl's reservations and complete disbelief in anything connected with spiritualism, although the results were as negative as Pearl had suspected, the ladies continued their experiments, occasionally receiving vague communications through the board, but nothing intelligible. Then on the 8th of July, 1913, a message began to come through. It read, Many moons ago I lived. Again I come. Patience worth my name. If thou shalt live, so shall I. This message was to be the beginning of a 25-year period during which the entity, Patience Worth, communicated to the world ostensibly through Pearl Lenore Curran. As Pearl became more and more interested in the numerous messages the women were receiving from Patience, she began spending more time on the Ouija board. However, it soon became clear that the Ouija board method was far too slow and cumbersome to deal with the sheer amount of material being received, so Pearl turned to direct automatic writing. Automatic writing, the process of recording material that does not originate in the conscious mind of the writer, had previously been used by the notable English medium and Church of England minister, William Stainton Moses, who experimented with the technique in the 1870s and early 1880s. Much more recently, in the early 1970s, psychic healer Matthew Manning claimed to have made use of automatic writing to record messengers, which apparently came from a 17th century man named Robert Webb, In common with William Stainton Moses, Pearl Curran never went into a trance to record the messages. The method she used was simply to sit in a brightly lit room and wait for the sentences to form in her mind while in a conscious state, and then write or type them out. While the words poured into her head, Pearl would feel pressure, and then scenes and images would present themselves before her, and she was able to note the details of each scene, the road, trees, landscape and people. Occasionally, she would see herself in the scenes. One problem Mrs Curran experienced was that the messages were received in a dialect, which was often difficult to understand. This was partly explained when Pearl learned from her communications that Patience Worth was a young girl who had lived on a farm in the county of Dorset, on the south coast of England, in the 1600s. Patience's family had subsequently emigrated to America 
and she had been murdered by Indians there. In all the years of communicating with Patience Worth, this is all that Pearl ever found out about her. However, it was noted by most of the visitors that sat with Pearl during her communications that the character and temperament of Patience Worth, with her biting, satirical wit, was very different to that of Mrs. Curran. In 1916, Caspar Eust's book Patience Worth, A Psychic Mystery, was published by Henry Holt. Eust was the editor of the St. Louis Globe Democrat and had promoted Mrs. Curran's claim of contact with Patience Worth in a series of articles in the paper beginning in February 1915. William Marion Reedy, the editor of the weekly St. Louis-based journal Reedy's Mirror, also became a convert and published glowing articles about Pearl Curran, Patience Worth's literary creations. The result of all this publicity was that the name of Patience Worth soon became known throughout the world. In the 25 years she was communicating, Patience Worth dictated a vast amount of literary work to Mrs. Curran, including six novels, hundreds of pages of poetry, proverbs, prayers and conversation. Many of her works were published under the name Patience Worth, including the novels The Sorry Tale, A Story of the Time of Christ, Telka, An Idol of Medieval England, and Hope Trueblood, A Nineteenth Century Tale. Many critics, including those from the New York Times and the Bookman, praised her literary efforts, impressed not only by the beauty of some of the imagery, but also by her use of archaic languages and words, descriptions of objects that had been out of use for hundreds of years, and her knowledge of foreign lands. How, they wondered, could a modest St. Louis housewife have acquired such precise historical details, and such sophisticated literary skill. Others were not so kind, noting that the appearance of Patience Worth coincided with the revival of spiritualism in Europe and America, creating an environment where much of the public were only too willing to believe in the reality of the reincarnation of a 17th century English girl in 20th century St. Louis. The sceptics also wondered how Patience supposedly a resident of 17th century England, managed to dictate a novel set in the Victorian era. Hope, True Blood. After 1922, communications from patients became fewer and fewer and eventually ceased altogether. Interest in the phenomenon of patients' worth soon faded as well and when Pearl Curran died in 1939, both her and her communicator were virtually unknown. Perhaps because there was never a solution to the mystery and no proof was ever produced that a girl named Patience Worth actually lived in 17th century Dorset, the case is regarded with scepticism by most people today, if they have heard of it at all. So, was there a spirit from the beyond speaking through Pearl Curran? Was Pearl the reincarnation of a 17th century English girl called Patience Worth? Or, as seems more likely, was it all a product of Pearl's unconscious mind? The case was meticulously investigated at the time by the sceptical Dr. Walter Franklin Prince, 
Research Officer of the American Society for Psychical Research from 1920 to 24, and Founder and Research Officer of the Boston Society for Psychical Research. Although Prince had previously investigated the multiple personality case of a disturbed girl called Doris Fisher, he was inclined to believe that Patience Worth did not fit into this category, as the entity did not replace Mrs. Curran's normal consciousness. It coexisted with it. In Prince's thorough summing up of the evidence of the case of Patience Worth, he states, Either our concept of what we call the subconscious must be radically altered, so as to include potencies of which we hitherto have had no knowledge, or else some cause operating through but not originating in the subconscious of Mrs. Curran must be acknowledged. Perhaps the progress currently being made by scientists and psychologists in the study of the human personality and its various idiosyncrasies will one day shed more light on the strange appearance of Patience Worth, as Patience herself said when questioned of her own existence. A phantom? Well, enough. Prove thee, thyself to me. I say, behold, here I be, buskins, kirtle, cap and pettiskirts, and much tongue. Weel, what hast thou to prove thee? And following along the reincarnation theme, from the www.telegraph.co.uk website, Is James Leoninga a reincarnation of a Second World War fighter pilot? James Leoninga, an 11-year-old American boy, could be the reincarnation of a Second World War fighter pilot according to a new book. He is said to have lived before as Lieutenant James Houston, Jr., who was shot down by the Japanese in 1945. A book about him, Soul Survivor, is a bestseller in the US and tells how he began to have dreams about the war as a two-year-old. His parents, Bruce, 59, and Andrea, 47, were initially sceptical about the idea of reincarnation, but have now traced the relatives of the dead pilot who were impressed by James's apparent memories of the war. Mrs. Leoninga told the Mirror, In the throes of his nightmares, you couldn't work out what he was saying. But two or three months in, I was walking down the hall and I heard him saying, Airplane crash, plane on fire, little man can't get out. It chilled me to my bone hearing this. I asked him what had happened to his plane and he said, It crashed on fire. I asked how it crashed and he said the Japanese shot his plane. James said his boat was called the Natoma and he remembered the name Jack Larson. Flicking through a book, the two-year-old pointed at a picture of Iwo Jima in the Pacific 
and said that was where his plane was shot down. Mr. Leoninga found that just one pilot died during the Battle of Iwo Jima, James M. Houston, Jr., 21. He was shot down on March 3, 1945, while on his 50th mission, his last before he was due to go home. James, now 11, from Lafayette, Louisiana, told the Mirror, I think the story is incredible. I don't remember any of it, but hearing about what happened when I was two, it is incredible. Well, maybe this is not a reincarnation of the sense of the word or the sense that we've talked about before, but from the telegraph.co.uk website, a schoolboy pianist, 10, is hailed as a new Mozart. And if you go to the show notes at www.origins.info and click on the link to this article in the Mysteries Abound show notes, you'll see a short video of the boy playing and an interview with his music teacher. Shane Thomas, 10, practices for only four hours a week, but already plays to a high standard and composes classical music scores in his head. He first sat down at a piano at the age of seven and could play almost instantly by ear. Since then, he has had formal lessons for just four months. Shane said, I told Dad when I was three that I could play, but nobody took me seriously. When I'm at school, I can listen to the teacher and do my work while composing in my head. I remember the melodies, then when I get home I play them on the piano and Dad records them. I love playing piano. When I grow up I want to be a piano composer. I don't have a favourite style because I like them all. I just find piano easy and never get nervous in front of audiences, however big. Shane's piano tutor, Richard Goffin Lacar, has compared him to Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, who showed prodigious ability during his childhood in 18th century Salzburg and went on to become among the most celebrated classical composers. Mr. Goffin Lacar said, Shane is unique. He takes the word gifted to another dimension. Medi would consider it pretentious to compare him with Mozart, but if one were to listen to him play one would know it was legitimate. I did not so much teach him as give him direction, then sit back and watch. Technically, he is phenomenal. Shane lives with his father Clayton, 48, brother Ashley, 4, and sister Chanel, 3, in Woking, Surrey. His parents are separated. Mr Thomas said, Age 7 he got his first keyboard, and within a day he could play it with both hands. It was Christmas and straight away he was playing carols like Little Donkey and Away in a Manger without guidance. Within weeks he played all sorts of complex music. After four months he was performing to 2,000 people at a show in Manchester. 
Mr. Thomas says money is tight, but he dreams of sending his son to a leading school. I am a single father, and it's a struggle, but I have this gifted child. There is no funding, but I want to give him the best teachers, and they are not cheap. I also want to take him into a studio to record. Nicholas Chisholm, head of the world-famous Yehudi Menuhin Music School in Surrey, agrees that Shane needs top tutoring. He said, Shane is extraordinary, but an embryonic talent. it's time to acknowledge those people who were kind enough to provide feedback for the podcast. From the iTunes US store, Search for Knowledge, Candy B, Sigui37, LVMPC21, Lord Firewolf, Osmo Tigogo, Shorty B and Shubuti. Thank you all of you for your reviews. And from iTunes Canada, thank you to Seventh Attempt and Jason Gallant. And from the iTunes UK store, thank you to Mr. Pepperman. And from the podcastalley.com website, thank you to Larry James 777. You've certainly been a busy boy, Larry, putting reviews everywhere. Thank you. And from MJ-HDZ. Outstanding, awe-inspiring stories told with a richness and mystery as if I was being told a story as a kid. Well, that comment, funnily enough, is really, really appreciated because before I was an education officer at the Botanic Gardens here in Brisbane, I was an elementary school or primary school teacher for 32 years and an area of special interest of mine was children's literature to the extent that I did postgraduate studies in the subject. So if you feel that I'm telling you the stories as I was telling them to a child, it really is greatly appreciated because that's what I'm after. Not so much that I think the listeners are children, but it's the process of the storytelling and storytelling in an effective manner that I'm trying to achieve. And if you believe that I'm doing so, I'm really, really impressed. I'm really pleased. Thank you. And that last comment leads me into this offer that I'm going to make to the listeners. Last Friday, October the 9th, here in the Botanic Gardens in Brisbane, we had a visit from our artist-in-residence. She took us on a journey around the Australian plant communities part of the gardens and showed us the gardens from an artist's point of view. While I was there, I took a whole series of photographs. And on Sunday, the 11th of October, I sat down with my computer and my software and my camera and I created a picture book 
to go with the photographs that I had taken. So if you'd like to download a small copy of the picture book, it's only a 3 megabyte PDF file, um, it'd be greatly appreciated if you would read it and offer your comments. It's called Nicola's Walk because Nicola was the name of the artist-in-residence who took us around the gardens giving us her impressions. I'm going to put a link to the PDF file on the show notes at www.origins.info. If you like it and would like to read it to your children or your family, it would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. One of the most perennial mysteries is the Shroud of Turin. Some people say it's a fake, some people say it's real. Well, from the news.bbc.co.uk website, a scientist reproduces the Turin Shroud. The Shroud of Turin has been reproduced by an Italian scientist in another attempt to prove that the cloth bearing an image of Christ's face is a fake. A professor of organic chemistry at the University of Pavia said he has used materials and techniques that were available in the Middle Ages. These included applying pigment to cloth and then heating it in an oven. Tests 20 years ago dated the fabric to between 1260 and 1390, but believers say it is an authentic image of Christ. The linen cloth, measuring about 4.4 by 1.1 metres, holds the concealed image of a man bearing all the signs of crucifixion, including bloodstains. Tests in 1988 have been repeatedly challenged and scientists remain unsure how the image came to be on the cloth. Scientist Luigi Galicelli, who is due to present his findings to a conference on the paranormal at the weekend, said many people believe that the shroud has unexplainable characteristics that cannot be reproduced by human means. But he added, the results obtained clearly indicates that this could be done with the use of inexpensive materials and with quite a simple procedure. Mr Garlicelli, funded by a group of Italian atheists and agnostics, reproduced the shroud by placing a linen sheet flat over a volunteer and then rubbing it with a pigment containing traces of acid. A mask was used for the face. The pigment was then artificially aged by heating the cloth in an oven and washing it. This removed the pigment from the surface, but left a half-toned image similar to that on the shroud. Bloodstains, burn holes and scorches and water stains were then added to achieve the final effect. Mr. Garlicelli said he expected people to challenge his research. If they don't want to believe carbon dating done by some of the world's best laboratories, they certainly won't believe me. The shroud is kept in Turin Cathedral and is rarely displayed in public.
Most of you have heard of the story of Jason and the Argonauts and their mythical quest for the Golden Fleece. Well, from the www.curiousnotions.com, Weave of the Gods, the real-life Golden Fleece. Paleontologists tell us the camel family arose in the North American Great Plains about 45 million years ago. One group took the Bering Land Bridge into Asia to establish the populations of Bactrian camels and dromedaries, while the other chose the southern route through Panama when that land bridge rose from the sea about 3 million years ago. Several of those species prospered in South America, including the guanaco, the vicuna, Lama oani and Lama gracilis. Ancient humans likely witnessed the extinctions of the latter too, but according to prevailing wisdom, bred the domesticated alpaca from the vicuna and the llama from the guanaco. They prized the fleeces of all four, but to them the most precious and magical was that of the vicuna. As you can see from the table, and you'll have to go to the show notes to see the table, only the churu, a gravely endangered Asian antelope, which is legally off-limits, rivals the fineness of its cinnamon-coloured wool. Beyond that, vicuna is exceedingly rare due to the animal's small size, about 90 pounds, yielding only 6 to 8 ounces of fleece every 2 or 3 years. Its obstinacy, supremely evasive and disinclined to eat or reproduce in captivity. Its death-defying habitat, greatly surpassing 14,000 feet, and the cashmere-like fragility of its fibre. If you were to own, say, a pair of trousers made from pure vicuna, they'd look and feel heavenly, but unless you resolved never to sit down in them, you would quickly wear through the seat. To strengthen it or make it go further, the Incas would often blend their vicuna fibre with that of this chacha, an Andean rabbit-like animal of the chinchilla family, but in any case, by law, only their royalty could wear such exquisite fabric. In 1958, Vicuna was on everybody's lips. President Eisenhower's favourite golfing buddy and Chief of Staff Sherman Adams got the boot after reporters learned that he had accepted various sumptuous finery, most famously a Vicuna coat from a certain Boston textile magnate named Bernie Goldfine, in exchange for some extra lenient treatment by federal regulators. The scandal even engulfed future columnist Jack Anderson, who was caught bugging Goldfine's hotel room. Since as far back as the Spanish conquest, hunting and poaching has been stressing the vicuna to the brink of extinction. By the 1970s, there were only a few thousand left. But thanks to vigorous conservation measures undertaken towards the end of the 20th century, most significantly on the part of the Peruvian government, their populations have recovered. In 2002, the US Fish and Wildlife Service reclassified the vicunas of Argentina, Bolivia, Chile and Peru from endangered to threatened and legalised exports from those four countries, subject to stringent documentation for the first time in decades. To the impoverished paisanos in the high Andes, this new industry shows great promise. They've revived an ancient tradition called the chaku, 
that involves much singing, dancing and feasting. Hundreds link hands and create a living human fence to gradually encircle the vicunas and herd them into pens. There they shear the animals, sometimes tag them, and then turn them loose. The per ounce price of this ethereal fibre spans a wide range from $10 wholesale raw to $250 or so retail. A coat like Sherman Adams's might cost $20,000 nowadays. And now a change of pace, a couple of stories from the paranormal, from the paranormalabout.com website. A giant bat sighting, and it's written by Beltran. This actually happened to me on September the 9, 2009. It was like any other night, not much business at work, so I returned home early. Later that night, about 11.30pm, I was brushing my teeth as I do nightly. I have a small bathroom with a single window that's usually open. It's about 10 to 15 feet from the ground. I was brushing my teeth when suddenly I heard something that scared the bejesus out of me. It sounded like something had hit the window's screen trying to get in. I was a bit shaken, but being the person I am, I had to take a second look to wait for whatever it was to come back. So I stared out of the window. Suddenly... The biggest bat I've ever seen in my life hit the screen. It had to have had at least a six-foot wingspan. Overall, its body had to be as large as a soccer ball. I got a good clear look at it as it bombarded my window several times, eating the insects that were attracted to my bathroom's light coming from the window, I assume. Running from my bathroom to my living room, I opened my sliding glass door and turned on my floodlights. This bat was enormous, with a capital E. Bats around here don't grow very big. I know as I watch them on nights with a full moon. Now I live in western New York, kind of rural, but still close to a few small towns. When I turned on those lights, that bat took right off after hitting the screen again. Needless to say, I'll be brushing my teeth with my window shut from now on. And also from the paranormalabout.com website, Soldier's Ghost by Emily A. This story didn't happen to me, but to very good friends of my family. They were raised strict Catholics and would never make something up like this. The family that this happened to had a little boy named Ryan. He was about three years old. At this time they lived in a tiny apartment high above an old house named Rockford that had been there since the early 1700s. 
Rockford once belonged to an extremely wealthy family that eventually died out over the years, and our friends ended up as the caretakers. A lot of weird things were said to have happened there, such as spigots turning on water when nobody was there to turn them on, lights flickering on and off, strange whistling noises coming from the old barn when it was locked up tight and nobody was inside. On one occasion the family was expecting guests and heard many voices and footsteps plodding up the staircase to their apartment door. The mother went out to greet them, only to find that nobody was on the stairs at all. In fact, nobody was anywhere in the house or outside in the driveway. One day, while the family were scattered about the many rooms doing their chores, young Ryan wandered into an empty room by himself. His mother heard him talking to someone and assumed he was just playing. Then Ryan tottered into her room and told her of the man wearing the blue coat, hat and rifle. Startled, Ryan's mother rushed into the room only to find it empty. She scoured the entire house only to come up with no explanation. Later on she asked Ryan what the man had said to him. He replied simply, The man said he was so very cold, so I told him to wait there until I got you to get him a blanket. There were some further incidences and eventually the family moved out. Sometimes I will drive down that dark, lonely road and look at the house that now stands vacant, wondering if something unknown is staring back at me. And from the www.unmuseum.org, the Paluxy Paradox. Did dinosaurs and men walk together? It was around 1910 when two boys out for a day for fishing made a fascinating discovery. Charlie and Grady Moss were walking along the Paluxy River near Glen Rose, Texas, when they spotted something strange on a limestone shelf. There they found a series of tracks imprinted into the rock. Immense tracks of a creature with three toes. Scientists would later identify this animal as a large theropod dinosaur named Acrocanthosaurus. Nearby, the three-toed tracks was something even more amazing. A series of oblong footprints in the stone that looked like it came from a giant man. The giant man tracks, as Charlie described them, quickly became local curiosities. It wasn't until much later that the incredible contradictions such a find would mean came to the attention of the scientific world. If indeed there were fossilised human footprints in the same rock as dinosaur footprints, 
then it must mean that the dinosaurs lived at the same time as men. Such a find would totally upset the geological timetable as it was known. Either dinosaurs hadn't died out 65 million years ago as generally thought, or man had come onto Earth much earlier than any scientific theory would allow. Dinosaur tracks were first spotted along the Wheeler branch of the Paluxy River after a heavy flood in the valley in 1908. A local teenager named Ernest Adams discovered a series of three-toed tracks. However, scientists were slow to recognise the value of such tracks, which are part of a class of fossils called trace fossils. But in the early 1980s, they began to realise that a series of footprints could tell them a story about the way living, breathing dinosaurs behaved that fossil bones could not. A series of fossil tracks known as a trackway can show scientists whether the animal moved on two legs or four, was running or walking, and travelled with its legs sprawled out or under its hips. The size of the feet and the length of the stride can also be used to calculate a rough estimate of how fast the creature was moving. Several trackways in close proximity to one another can tell us how one animal related with others. Was it walking as part of a herd? Was it chasing another animal? Or perhaps being chased? Such fossil tracks are typically formed when an animal walks across a soft, moist, fine-grained sediment. As the animal steps, its feet sink into the ground, leaving impressions. If the tracks lie undisturbed till the sediment hardens, another deposit of sediment can then wash over the tracks and cover them. Over time, these sediment layers harden into rock. As the rock erodes downward, these tracks are eventually exposed. Depending on the conditions when the tracks were formed, the impressions can range from clear to indistinct. In theory, dinosaur tracks can be found in any rock strata laid down in the Mesozoic era when dinosaurs were alive. But conditions at the actual time the tracks are made are critical to their creation. There are over a thousand known locations where dinosaur tracks can be found around the world. In the 1930s, during the Great Depression, some of the residents of Glen Rose began to supplement their incomes by chiselling out dinosaur tracks from the riverbed and selling them to passing tourists. There are also reports that some of Charlie Moss's giant man tracks were also removed and sold. In the same era, a few of the area's entrepreneurs not only sold the real dino tracks, but started carving new ones on loose stone and selling those. In addition to carved dinosaurs' tracks, Apparently, some giant man tracks were also created by carving and were passed off on visiting sightseers. In 1938, one pair of these carved man tracks wound up at a trading post in Gallup, New Mexico. There they caught the eye of Roland Bird, a paleontologist with the American Museum of Natural History. Checking in some other nearby shops, Bird also found carved dinosaur tracks. He recognised them as being carvings rather than actual tracks, but was intrigued by what the carvers might have seen that had inspired them to make the fakes. Finding that the carving originated in the Glen Rose region, he decided to stop there on his way back to New York City. 
Bird soon found a number of trackways of three-toed dinosaurs in the Palaxi riverbed. Then he discovered huge bathtub-sized tracks of sauropods, long-necked, long-tailed dinosaurs that walked on four legs in the same region. Bird investigated the giant man tracks but only saw one. It was a large, indistinct oblong impression with a curiously shaped heel that he judged to be made by a hitherto unknown dinosaur or reptile. In the 1950s, Bird's work with the dinosaur tracks at Glen Rose came to the attention of a man named Clifford Burdick. Burdick supported a theory that the Earth was only 15,000 years old and thought that if there were dinosaur tracks intermixed with human tracks, it would show that the standard geological timetable generally accepted by science was wrong. Burdick visited the Paluxy, decided he'd seen some man tracks in the rock, and in 1950 wrote an article about them entitled When Giants Roam the Earth for the magazine Sign of the Times. Burdick's article, however, implied that Bird had found what he, Bird, considered to be man tracks when he had not. Also in the pictures that Burdick had of the tracks, only the loose rock specimens, which Bird thought to be carvings, really looked anything like man prints. The pictures of tracks still in place in the riverbed appeared to be three-toed dinosaur tracks, or they were indistinct. The Burdick article, despite its inaccuracy, generated interest in the site among people supporting the idea that dinosaurs and humans walked the earth together. In the 1970s, a man named Stanley Taylor filmed a documentary about man tracks called Footprints in the Stone. Though Taylor wasn't taken in by the carved man tracks collected by Bird, he found a number of the strange oblong footprints in the riverbed and put them in the documentary, interpreting them as human footprints. About the same time Taylor was doing his filming, a group of investigators from Loma Linda University came to investigate the man tracks. Though they were supporters of the theory that the Earth had only a short history, they reached an opposite conclusion from Burdick. Some of the man tracks found in the riverbed had a strange shape due to erosion, but they were all typical bipedal dinosaur tracks. Others were not tracks at all, but just areas where the rock had eroded into strange shapes. Of the loose stones the team examined with tracks in them, they determined that they were all likely carved hoaxes. In 1979, the stories about the man tracks reached the ears of a biology student at the College of Worcester in Ohio named Glenn Coobin. Coobin and a companion, Tim Bartholomew, travelled to Glen Rose to take a look at the fossils for themselves. They found, as the Loma Linda team had asserted, some were not tracks at all, but just eroded sections of rock. Other tracks found at the site Taylor had filmed for footprints in stone did seem oddly human in shape. On close examination, the men determined that they were not human, but as the Loma Linda team reported, made by a dinosaur. In many cases, the three-toed mark of a dinosaur foot was visible with careful examination, though the outer two toes showed up only vaguely. Erosion didn't seem to explain why the marks looked as human as they did, however. Cuban and Bartholomew began to suspect there was something special about these prints, especially the elongated heel. Either the dinosaur didn't have a typical dinosaur foot, 
or the dinosaur was walking in an unusual manner. Cuban made casts of the tracks and studied them carefully over the next few months. He came to the conclusion that the animal wasn't walking, as it usually would, with most of its weight on its toes. Instead it was walking flat-footed, often referred to as a metatarsal because of the part of the dinosaur's foot involved, putting more weight on the back than on the front. This explained the elongated heel and the lighter toe impressions. Before Cuban could publish his findings, new claims arose that fossil man tracks had been found at Paluxy. In 1982, a man named Carl Bohr got involved, claiming he had found fossil human footprints. None of Bohr's discoveries proved to be actual human footprints, however. Some were the strange metatarsal dinosaur prints found in other places. Others were shallow depressions with only a vague resemblance to human tracks. Almost no scientists supported Bohr's conclusions. He continued to search the area for fossil indications of human habitation during the dinosaur era. He later produced a supposed human tooth, which turned out to be from a fish, along with other objects, none of which could be shown to have come from the Paluxy site and strata. More evidence that the strange metatarsal prints were actually from dinosaurs was found the same year during another visit by Glenn Cuban to Glen Rose. Cuban was shown by a local rancher named Alfred West some tracks on West's property that bordered the Paluxy. Several of the trackways there displayed dinosaur footprints as the creatures switched from a normal step to the metatarsal step and back. Also, the edges of some of the metatarsal steps in those trackways had collapsed, leaving an indistinct but very human-looking print. In 1984, additional evidence of the dinosaur nature of some of the prints was found when Cuban and Ron Hastings, another researcher, noticed independently that some of the metatarsal footprints had left and right dinosaur toe marks, not outlined by indentations in the rock, but by a slightly different coloration of the material. They suspected and later confirmed that the outer toes of the dinosaur tracks in ancient times had filled with a sediment of a slightly different composition than the material into which the actual footprint had been imprinted. When the footprints had been exposed, the centre portion had weathered out more quickly than the outer toes, but the shape of the toes could still be discerned by the coloration. This coloration became more pronounced over time as the material in the tracks turned a rust-like colour due to its high iron content. The prints at the west site, the coloration markings of the tracks and a pair of papers written by Cuban on the subject pretty much closed the book on the supposed human Paluxy prints. Stan Taylor's son stopped distributing the film Footprints in Stone and at least one author, John Morris, whose book heavily promoted the evidence of human footprints at Paluxy, stopped the sale of his work. That perhaps left only one question to be answered. Why did the dinosaurs walk in such a flat-footed fashion? Surely not just to confuse humans many years later. Some possibilities are that the animals were walking in a crouch position, foraging for food or stalking prey. Another explanation might be that some dinosaurs may have walked in this fashion in an attempt to get a better footing on the slippery sediment, just as people sometimes do when they are walking on ice. 
So, did humans walk with the dinosaurs? There are still people that support this theory, saying that the Earth is younger than the standard geological timetable indicates, or that man has been around a lot longer than science thinks. However, if these theories are someday proven true, it will have to be with different evidence than that from the famed Paluxy human fossil footprints. And to conclude today's podcast, the top 10 fascinating facts about the Mayans, and this is from the listverse.com. The music in the background is Morning Air by Joan Petrie, and you might notice that it's a live recording. You'll hear a few sounds and bumps in the background, but it's a nice piece of music, so I thought I'd add it to the podcast. So if you're hearing bumps and sounds in the background, it's actually from the music track. I thought this might be a good article to do at this point with all the hoo-ha going on at the moment about 2012 and the imminent release of the movie called 2012 and it's by Jay Freighter. The Maya is a Mesoamerican civilization noted for the only known fully developed written language of the pre-Columbian Americas as well as its art, architecture and mathematical and astronomical systems. Many misconceptions about the Mayans exist, and this list should put to an end at least one or two of them. In addition, it will introduce you to facts that you never knew about this great ancient civilization. Number 10. Continuing Culture There are numerous Mayans still living in their home regions. In fact, there are over 7 million Mayans living in their home regions, many of whom have managed to maintain substantial remnants of their ancient cultural heritage. Some are quite integrated into the modern cultures of the nations in which they reside, while others continue a more traditional culturally distinct life, often speaking one of the Mayan languages as a primary language. The largest populations of contemporary Maya inhabit the Mexican states of Yucatan, Campeche, Quintana Roo, Tabasco, Chiapas and in the Central American countries of Belize, Guatemala and the western portions of Honduras and El Salvador. Number 9. Mayan Childhood The Mayans enhanced the beauty of their children. The Maya desired some unnatural physical characteristics for their children For instance, at a very young age, boards were pressed on babies' foreheads to create a flattened surface. This process was widespread among the upper class. Another practice was to cross babies' eyes. To do this, objects were dangled in front of a newborn's eyes until the newborn's eyes were completely and permanently crossed. Another interesting fact about Mayan children is that most were named according to the day that they were born. 
Every day of the year had a specific name for both boys and girls, and parents were expected to follow that practice. Number 8. Excellent Doctors The Mayans had many excellent medical practices. Health and medicine among the ancient Maya was a complex blend of mind, body, religion, ritual and science. Important to all, medicine was practiced only by a select few who were given an excellent education. These men, called shamans, acted as a medium between the physical world and spirit world. They practiced sorcery for the purpose of healing, foresight and control over natural events. Since medicine was so closely related to religion and sorcery, it was essential that Maya shamans had vast medical knowledge and skill. It is known that the Maya sutured wounds with human hair, reduced fractures and were even skilled dental surgeons, making prostheses from jade and turquoise and filling teeth with iron pyrite. Number 7. Blood Sacrifice Some Mayans still practice blood sacrifice. It is a rather well-known fact that the Mayans practiced human sacrifice for religious and medical reasons. But what most people don't know is that many Mayans still practice blood sacrifice. But don't get too excited. Chicken blood has now replaced human blood. Today the Maya keep many of the ritualistic traditions of their ancestors. Elements of prayer, offerings, blood sacrifice, burning of copal incense, dancing, feasting and ritual drinking continue in traditional ceremonies. Number 6. Painkillers the Mayans used painkillers. The Mayan peoples regularly used hallucinogenic drugs in their religious rituals, but they also used them in day-to-day life as painkillers. Floras such as peyote, the morning glory, certain mushrooms, tobacco and plants used to make alcoholic substances were commonly used. In addition, as depicted in Maya pottery and carvings, Ritual enemas were used for a more rapid absorption and effect of the substance. And if you go to this article in the show notes and look down at number 6, you'll see a statue of a Mayan giving themselves an enema and looking very, very pleased about it. Number 5. Ball Courts The Mayans built ball courts so they could play games. The Mesoamerican ball game was a sport with ritual associations played for over 3,000 years by the pre-Columbian peoples of Mesoamerica. The sport had different versions in different places during the millennia, and a modern version of the game, Ulama, is still played in a few places by the local indigenous population. Ball courts were public spaces used for a variety of elite cultural events and ritual activities like musical performances and festivals, and of course, the ball game. Enclosed on two sides by stepped ramps that led to a ceremonial platform or small temple, the ball court itself was of a capital I shape and could be found in all but the smallest of Maya cities. The game was played with a ball roughly the size of a volleyball but made from rubber and heavier. Decapitation is particularly associated with the ball game. Severed heads are featured in much late classic ball game art. There has even been speculation that the heads and skulls were used as balls. Number 4. Saunas The Mayans used saunas. 
An important purification element to the ancient Maya was the sweat bath. Similar to a modern day sauna, sweat baths were constructed of stone walls and ceilings, with a small opening in the top of the ceiling. Water poured onto the hot rocks in the room and created steam, offering a setting in which to sweat out impurities. Sweat baths were used for a range of conditions and situations. New mothers who had recently conceived a child would seek revitalization in them, while individuals who were sick could find healing power in sweating. Maya kings made a habit out of visiting the sweat baths as well because it left them feeling refreshed and they believed cleaner. Number three, the last Maya state. The last Maya state existed until 1697. The island city of Tayasal was the last independent Mayan kingdom and some Spanish priests peacefully visited and preached to the last Itza king Kanek as late as 1696. The Itza kingdom finally submitted to Spanish rule on March 13, 1697. The famous archaeological site and home to the beautiful monuments we are all familiar with was in Chichen Itza, located in this last independent region. Interestingly, much of the land under the monuments is privately owned by one family, whilst the government owns and administers the monuments themselves. Number two, life goes on. The Mayan calendar does not predict the end of the world in 2012. First of all, the Mayans don't have a calendar. They have calendars, which often interlocked. The calendar that has given rise to the myth of the end of the world is the Mayan long count calendar. According to Mayan mythology, we are living in the fourth world or creation, so to speak. The last creation ended on 12, 19, 19, 17, 19 of the long count calendar. That sequence will occur again on December 20, 2012. According to the Mayans, this is a time of great celebration for having reached the end of a creation cycle. It does not mean the end of the world, but the beginning of a new age. Does the world end every December 31st? No, we go on to a new year. This is the same as the Mayan creation periods. In fact, the Mayans make many references to dates that fall beyond 2012. The idea of 2012 being the end of the world was actually first suggested by New Age religionist José Arguelles in his 1987 book The Mayan Factor, Path Beyond Technology. And finally, number one, ancient mystery. No one really knows what caused the collapse of the Mayan culture. For reasons that are still debated, the Maya centres of the southern lowlands went into decline during the 8th and 9th centuries and were abandoned shortly thereafter. This decline was coupled with a cessation of monumental inscriptions and large-scale architectural construction. Non-ecological theories of Maya decline are divided into several subcategories such as overpopulation, foreign invasion, peasant revolt and the collapse of key trade routes. Ecological hypotheses include environmental disaster, epidemic disease and climate change. 
There is evidence that the Maya population exceeded carrying capacity of the environment, including exhaustion of agricultural potential and overhunting of megafauna. Some scholars have recently theorised that an intense 200-year drought led to the collapse of the Mayan civilization. That concludes episode 30 of Mysteries Abound. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. And just a reminder, I'd like to thank those people who provided feedback for the podcast. And if you'd like to do feedback, it's through iTunes or Podcast Alley or via email. And the email for this podcast is mysteries at origins.info. I'd also like to thank Philip from Folsom, California, for becoming the latest friend of the podcast. Thank you very much, Philip, for your contribution. It does help things to keep going. Oh, and before I forget, if you'd like a copy of the book that I've written with the photographs from the Botanic Gardens here in Brisbane, don't forget to go to the show notes at www.origins.info and click on the link to episode 30 in the Mysteries Abound podcast show notes. And there you'll find a link to the PDF file. And it's bye for now, everyone.